0: I did some exercises doing things like going to Union Square in New York and just lying down on the ground in public and just feeling what that feels like.
1: (laughs) I think you told me that the first time we talked.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And it's really, it's, it was really a weird experience because every fiber of my being was saying, get off the ground. You should not be here.
1: Ben Grenell, part of the early startup team here at Levels. We're building tech that helps people to understand their metabolic health, and this is your front row seat to everything we do. This is a whole new level. So this week, I had the opportunity to sit down with Sam Korkos, CEO and one of the co-founders of Levels. And the first time that Sam and I connected was actually my first touchpoint to Levels. A conversation that we had and we got on the phone and it was really interesting because although it was a very thorough conversation which was very enjoyable we also ended up talking about things like South Park we talked about a lot of different books that we had read we laughed a lot and it was just a very interesting conversation and I remember getting into bed later that night and my wife Pam asked she was like hey how did it go and I'm like that guy is without a doubt one of the most intelligent people I've ever spoken with I'm like I tried to keep up with him um but it was was odd because the more that I got to know Sam the more that I realized like he's got this incredible amount of empathy for people he's not only an incredible executor but he's an incredible human being And so in this episode, we ended up talking about all the different ways that Sam has led his life. Everything from living out of a backpack, traveling the world, being minimalist in his footprint and his approach. And a lot of these thought processes, they tie into his vision for Levels, what he thought could be done to execute, not just as a great company, but as one that was remote first. And part of being remote first is that we have the ability and the opportunity for some of us to travel the world to be where we want when we want and to get the work done and Sam it's not surprising that's the approach that he's taken your travel schedule is ongoing which is <laughs> one of the things we got to talk about
0: it's it's a lot less crazy than it used to be let me tell you
1: Why, why was it so crazy before versus, I mean, like throw COVID out the window. Um, why was it so crazy before versus now?
0: Well, I mean, COVID is the reason why it's not crazy anymore. In fact, I think I spent three months in Sacramento, which is probably the longest I'd spent in one place in 10 years, maybe eight years.
1: So when did this nomadic minimalist lifestyle begin?
0: I I think the time when I really I had been doing it previously but the time I really kicked it off was in 2013. Um I went on a I was doing some programming stuff and I joined a group called Hacker Paradise and we did a it was a 1 month trip to Estonia. And I met a lot of very interesting people. Uh, it was a really cool trip. Um, the minimalism largely came out of necessity. Uh, I was doing so much travel. I had the goal of saying yes to a lot more things, and just sort of going where the wind would take me, um, just as a uh, as a practice of being comfortable with ambiguity and discomfort. So. I forget which country. I think I was maybe in Estonia, um, and I made some friends who were from Belgrade, Serbia, and they mentioned that they were they were going to go to Lieberland, which is this. Uh, it's a country that a, uh, a a somewhat quirky politician from the Czech Republic uh, scoured the globe for areas of land in the world that are just unclaimed by a nation state. <laughs> and he found this, I think it's like a seven square kilometer patch of land between Serbia and Croatia that during some border conflict they had, they couldn't agree who owned it. So neither of them claimed it. And so he just showed up one day and put a flag down and said, new country Libra land.
1: <laughs> so this is actually a country in the world right now.
0: Oh yeah. It's it's a place you can go. And so I had some friends that wanted to go uh, sorry, I, I had just made some new friends, and they said they were going to go to Liberland. And uh, I just joined them, because why not? I, I spent the better part of probably four years uh, in all over the U.S., Central and South America, and Western Europe. Um, I, I think the longest I stayed in one place during that time was uh, maybe a month. And so the the minimalism sort of became a necessity it's hard to lug a bunch of stuff around and one of the practicalities of doing so much travel is you start to go through your stuff and you just realize how much of it you don't use so you have a big checked bag and you've been traveling for 3 months and you're starting to look through it and you realize you have all of these things that are for contingencies like well what happens if i i have this pair of pants what if what if I need a pair of shorts? What if I need cargo pants? What if I need something? What if I spill on this pair of pants? I need a backup to every pair of pants. And you end up with this proliferation of stuff. And at a certain point, you just realize that you didn't use any of it. And also, by the way, if if you need laundry detergent, they have laundry detergent in Mexico. <laughs> you can just get it there.
1: <laughs> wait, wait, what? <laughs> yeah. No so, idea. That's right. <laughs> Okay, but hold on, hold on. We gotta, we gotta jump into one thing. You said if you need shorts, if you need a shirt, whatever it was, and then you said if you need cargo pants. Mm-hmm. The, 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 only thing that I need to clarify is like, does anybody ever need cargo pants?
0: <laughs> you know, if you're doing a really long backpacking hike through somewhere that does not have a lot of, um, does not have a lot of stops. Like if you're backpacking in the backwoods of Norway or you just need more places to put stuff then yeah you you I would say there's there, there are definitely use cases for it if you do a lot of backpacking
1: from from a function standpoint mm-hmm. I agree I agree. Okay so you're going around like you're traveling around to all these countries. let's back it up even further though because sure. there's there's this like interesting point where 10-ish years ago, you decided, Hey, I'm done with the news. Like I'm not consuming the news. There are all these like micro, um, events in your life. If, if you want to call it that or micro microcosms that ended up leading to what it seems like is this different version of Sam.
0: Yeah. I, I read a book that really opened my eyes to the problems in the news industry specifically, but really about information systems broadly, uh, it was Ryan Holiday's book. Trust me, I'm lying, and the subtitle is "Confessions of a Media Manipulator." And he he wrote the book actually as a confession, as somebody who has manipulated the media, spread fake information, basically coining the term "fake news" before that was something that anybody talked about, using it for commercial ends. Um, he was the uh, he was the the head of growth at American Apparel and a bunch of other people and organizations that you would have heard of and he did it through manipulation and this this was his book ringing the alarm saying I've been doing this I'm really sorry this is a huge problem we need to pay attention to this before it becomes a huge issue and he wrote that book in 2011 um just before today's situation that we have
1: it's like a, a gladwell book like yeah. it sort of ends ends with ambiguity it's like here's one side to the argument and here's the other side to the argument. You make up your own decision of what the outcome is. And you're like, thanks. Yeah. Thank you.
0: Yeah. And so I, I started to, I, I gave myself a challenge, which was, I, I had the goal of, uh, I was, I was also pretty addicted to social media, which I did not recognize at the time. Um, I, I installed an app. I think I had read Tim Ferriss' book, uh, Four-Hour Workweek, and he talks a lot about um, time management in that book and just being more intentional and mindful of how you use your time. And so I, I installed an app called Rescue Time, which he may specifically recommend in the book or maybe I found it elsewhere, but uh, I started tracking how I was spending my time. And when I got my first weekly report back, I was, I, I had convinced myself that I was spending maybe 20 minutes a day on social media, uh, but I was spending hours a day on Facebook. And when I got that report back, it was just staring me in the face. And I started to realize that I had these ticks where I would open up Chrome and I would do Command T F return and I would open up Facebook just compulsively. Uh, Every time I would walk between meetings or just going to get a cup of tea, I would open up Facebook on my phone and start scrolling. And I didn't realize the cumulative effect of how much time I was spending on it, uh, but also how negatively it affected me. Um, I think in general, we don't recognize the effect that information has on our physical well-being. Um. So what I gave myself the challenge of I would not do any news or social media for one month and I would try reading books instead and uh, just a one-to-one time trade-off and I managed to read eight books that month, which is more books than I had read probably in the previous five years. And the thing that was most interesting was just how I physically felt different, my my, uh, I felt less tense in my neck. (laughs) I felt happier in life. And I also didn't really miss anything, which was surprising. Um, the, uh, I missed a lot of ephemeral information that really does not matter. And I captured a lot of new information in the form of books, which was actually quite useful and interesting. Uh, it's, it's information that somebody spent years of their life synthesizing into a form that you can read. Um, and I, I ended up really getting a lot of value from that. And I uh, just broadly speaking in terms of information systems, I, i I'm not quite sure of the best way to articulate it, but I think in general, we recognize that information can have an effect Um for example, we, we recognize patterns with our eyes, and those patterns affect our physical body in some way. For example, um, your eyes recognize a pattern in the shape of a tiger that's running at you and is going to kill you and eat you. Um, your body is going to go into fight or flight. You're going to be terrified. Uh, we all probably would agree that being in a constant state of, fear and anxiety about being killed and eaten by a tiger is probably bad for your long-term health. That is not a healthy kind of stress. But we, I don't think that as a society, we've we've reconciled the fact that news and other types of information, the same types of patterns, we just see them in the form of words, those patterns have the same physical effect on us. Uh, when we see things that scare us, we're constantly triggering this fight-or-flight stress response that's really, I think, at the source of a lot of the mental health problems we have societally. I would also say a lot of the general metabolic health problems that we have. Uh, when your mental health is not in a good state, it can affect a lot of other things that are downstream. So since I gave up news about eight years ago, I've been, I've been almost entirely news sober for eight years. I, uh, I've managed to read two books a week since then. So about a hundred books a year for the last eight years. And I haven't looked back and I've given friends of mine the same challenge of trying to go, uh, cold Turkey on news for a month. And, uh, every single person that has done it has not looked back.
1: Yeah. It's interesting because I, I would have never guessed. I mean, this is the, the part that is so interesting is that we are all human. At the foundation, we are human and we're imperfect beings. So, with that being the the mental model for hey, like I can see how this happens. I would have never guessed that you had challenges managing social media or like digital information consumption based on the Sam Corcos I know of today, <laughs> right? Like, because to me, I'm like Sam is. Sam is a human machine, like you are this machine that is dressed up like a human being. But I'm pretty sure it's like your process for everything is so, um, it's so focused. I think that's the word for it. It's very focused, right? It's very calculated and there's a lot of intent behind what you do. So to me, the idea of doom scrolling doesn't seem like something that fits with your your outlook. And I think maybe it's just because the evolution of like who you are today versus who you were back then. But did you always have this insatiable like yearning for knowledge? Is that where, like when you decided to dig into books, you're like, Hey, this is a nice outlet. Or was it one of those things? Cause you said, yeah, I didn't really read that many books um, prior to, to just consuming books. Where did that come from?
0: Yeah, I, I would not say that I've always had an insatiable thirst for knowledge per se, um, because I just based on empirical behavior, I I only started reading books fairly recently. Um, I've read a lot of books since then. Um, I would say that I've I've always had, I've always been very competitive, and I always like a good challenge. Um, I. I like playing board games, and I especially like playing board games against people who are better than me at board games because I can learn things from them, and I like the challenge. I don't. I think some people just really like to win, and that's not something that I relate to. Um, I would say that I'm I'm much more. I don't I don't like to be wrong. So I, I will often fact check myself during the course of a conversation, um, and I the the constantly seeking to challenge and to grow. I guess I would describe it as more of a a, a constant curiosity and search for growth, more than learning specifically. Uh, only because I, I mentally associate learning with um, reading and other types of of um, more intellectual pursuits. That's been that's been something for the last five years. That's been a big part of my life, but it definitely was not the case when I was younger. I played a lot of sports. I played, uh, I did football, rugby and track in college. I did basketball, baseball, uh, wrestling. uh, You name the sport. I I did it when I was younger. Um, So I, I think the, the intellectualism started coming from reading books and recognizing. I think that what is it the Dunning Kruger effect. Mm-hmm. Once you once you bottom out and you realize how little you actually know, <laughs> you can become a lot more interested in what everybody else knows.
1: Every day, every yeah. day. I mean, that's sort of the thing, right? Like when you're around really smart people. You're just like, I mean, this is maybe it's self-serving to think this way, but I'm just like, I know literally nothing. Like you just start, you, you think this way because all you want to do is absorb knowledge from people who have a different lens on the world and perspective than you do. And you're like, I want to know, like, I want to learn. This is stuff that I'm not familiar with. And so it's maybe it is part of that growth, right? Like you're always trying to get better for yourself. I mean, that's the way I feel like I'm never, I'm the only person I compete with is myself in the weirdest way. I don't care. Like I, I I have to stop using the word. I don't care because I care immensely. But when I say I don't care, I'm not concerned about trying to beat somebody else from a competition standpoint, like unless you're in a competition like there is sometimes sure. sometimes there's like a winner take all like a game there is a winner take all and like sure you want to win but w- when you're in the game of life to me like I only want to beat myself every day like I just want to be better than I was the day before in whatever respect that is and it's that's why it's an evolution so it's like that hyper competitive nature is for me personally, is what makes me go, "Hey, I want to read more books." Yep. I see Sam reads a lot of books; he is inspiring me to read more books. Hey, Sam's uh, doing a ton of push-ups in the month of January.
0: <laughs> I want to see not fun.
1: <laughs> no, it didn't look like fun. And to highlight what it was, you as like a digression, you were in a push-up competition with who was it? Austin Alred, Jeffrey Wu. Mateo, uh, a bunch of other people. Yeah, so 8Sleep, Mateo, HVMN, uh, Jeff Wu, and then Austin Ulred from Lambda School. You had a push-up competition to see if you could get to 500 a day, which sounds achievable Done back to Dunning-Kruger effect. Like, <laughs> oh, yeah, I could do 500 a day. That's what people think. And then you go to do it, and everyone's like, holy shit, this is hard.
0: <laughs> it certainly was.
1: But you um, did it. You did it. You were competitive with yourself, and yeah. you pushed everybody else in like a very jovial way to keep up with it.
0: Yeah, it was it was a it was a fun experiment. I uh, I wasn't able to do it every day. My target was actually one hundred, and then people kept one upping each other. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, it was absurd. So we got to dig back into this digital nomad um, life that you've been living because the journey seems that you went down this path of yearning for new information and disposing of what was deemed uh, ineffective or, well, just call it call a spade a spade, like garbage information that was not doing anything beneficial for your mindset, for your mental health, for your learning. You went down that path. And then when was a point that you're like, hey, I'm going to literally travel the world and experience all of these new places and still manage to work and be productive um, and just live life in that way? Because I think there's a lot of tie-ins to what we're doing today.
0: Yeah, I think the, the answer is that I had this recognition that as a effectively, mostly a freelance software developer is where most of my revenue came from. Um, I didn't need to be anywhere in particular. So I could just choose to be wherever I wanted to be. And um, I just went for it. And I really enjoyed it. And I I don't remember those, one of these books that I picked up, where they talk about ways to overcome fear and uh one is to think through the worst case scenario and work backwards from there and oftentimes when you think through all right i'm really afraid to make this decision if i make this decision what is the worst thing that can happen and when you spell out the worst case scenario oftentimes it's actually not as bad as you think it is it's the it's the ambiguity around what could happen that is actually causing the anxiety um And so that really helped just get over the the emotional hurdle. Um, I think also I did some exercises just, again, in some of these other books. Um, One in particular was around recognizing feelings, which sounds pretty elementary. And you'd think that even children should be able to do this. But um, I was surprised at how useful and productive it was doing things like Going to Union Square in New York and just lying down on the ground in public and just feeling what that feels like.
1: <laughs> I think you told me that the first time we talked.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And it's really, it's, it was really a weird experience because every fiber of my being was saying, get off the ground. You should not be here. But I could lie down right now in my house and, not feel weird so why is it that in this moment i feel such incredible discomfort and putting yourself in those positions and starting to recognize this this has happened many times since then when i'm at a decision moment and i'm starting to notice what i'm feeling and it's the same thing it's this arbitrary discomfort and fear of something it's like oh okay this is not real this is just in my head. I I need to think logically about this and I should be able to push past this. So, um, that was something that, uh, I, I only started to become capable of much later in life than I think is probably, uh, healthy, but just being able to recognize how you feel and when I think is a a really important skill.
1: But let's, let's debate one thing for a sec. So couple things are the reason you you would feel off or odd about lying down in Times Square is because the social norm of doing it is n- not necessarily like acceptable by society. I think our mental model of, hey, a person is lying down on the ground in the middle of this place where you typically don't lie down on the ground, our, our mental model is, Oh, that person must be hurt. Whereas if you are in your house and there are no eyeballs on you, even if somebody came in, um, came into the house, it's unlikely that they would be like, are you okay? Cause they'd be like, Sam sure. is lying on the carpet, like probably stretching. So I understand, I understand the thought process behind it, but I think the challenge is, yeah, it should feel odd because you are breaching the social contract between you and a stranger of what is generally thought of as being acceptable in that environment.
0: Yeah, I think that's absolutely the case. And recognizing it as a social construct is really helpful. Um, a lot of the, I I think you can only really be a good entrepreneur if you're willing to violate social constructs. Um, Almost everything you do is outside of what is normal. So you have to recognize when you're artificially holding yourself back. Uh, One of my favorite books on this um, is uh, Andrew Yang's book, Smart People Should Build Things. And I really liked in the book when he talks about his own personal struggle to justify to his peers that he's going to go into startups and leave a prestigious job in finance or consulting or law or whatever the case may be, the, the easy, low risk, no social stigma, everyone pats you on the back path. Um, I remember that pressure acutely when I was, uh, when I was late in college, um, seeking to get a job in finance. That's what all the cool kids were doing. So that's what I should do. That's the high status thing. Being able to recognize that for what it is, I think, is a really important skill, and being having the self confidence to go a different path and not be as concerned about uh, the the social norms around these things.
1: Yeah, it's hard. It's hard swimming upstream. Like swimming upstream can be not going into consulting or i banking when everybody else is in your social circle. Swimming upstream can be walking into a business meeting with purple hair, like, there are all of these things where it doesn't fit the, to your point, the social construct of like, what is generally thought of as being the norm in that environment. And um, you're right that when you're an entrepreneur, like what it is, is doing something that people generally don't think is possible. And that's hard. You have to convince yourself that. Well, there are a couple sides to, to startups. One, when you do anything, you co-found anything. I always say you have to be smart enough to pull the wool over your eyes and convince yourself that you can actually make it, given the statistics of what this it makes, takes to succeed. But which you have are not to be
0: favorable. <laughs> yeah,
1: but you have to be stupid enough to convince yourself that you can do it, given the chances of success, right? So it's like equal part smart, equal part stupid. But um, and I'm being quite colloquial about it. Um, but it's yeah, you're you're really you are swimming upstream. You're you are going against the grain to do something that's big and difficult. And the harder the problem space, the bigger the problem space, the more in our case, the more regulation and barriers to entry the harder it is. And that's where like the fun comes in is that it's, it is a challenge, but it's also something that's really meaningful.
0: Yeah. I, I think that's, uh, it's a, uh, a constant source of frustration for my friends and former partners. Um, that I, I will often be told that certain things that I'm doing are not normal. And, uh, that is, that is one of the least convincing ways to get me to change what I'm doing. <laughs> normal is not what I'm shooting for. So saying that what I'm doing is not normal is, uh, is not going to get me to change what I'm doing.
1: Every, t- every time I hear that, I'm like, I'm on the right path. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> like if I, the second that something is normal or average, I'm like, oh, where did I go wrong? What, what got screwed up?
0: Right, Exactly.
1: So with all of the, all, all this thought on being nomadic, being minimalist, where did it tie into saying, Hey, we're going to be a remote company when, when you and Josh and the team started thinking about putting together a bigger team when levels actually became something?
0: Yeah, it was pretty clear to me that I wanted Levels to be a a remote first team from the beginning. Um, Josh was on the fence because he had never worked in a remote environment before, but I'd been doing it for so long um, that I felt like I had a pretty good sense of how to do it effectively. Um, It just seemed to me that there were so, everything comes with trade-offs. There were so many advantages to being remote that the the cost benefit just seemed really obvious. If you build the company intentionally being remote from the ground up, one of the challenges that companies run into is they start out as a co-located team and then they allow remote and then you end up with this second-class citizen type mm-hmm. of employee um, and your processes don't really support remote and everything starts falling through the cracks. Um, I One of the most obvious things that being remote allows is you have access to the most talented people in the world you're not geographically isolated to one geography you have access to two or three orders of magnitude more people Uh, the other is that if you different types of companies are probably better or worse suited for remote Um, i'm a programmer by background And one of the things that I really, really appreciate about remote work is that it gives you a lot of control over your calendar, and it gives you a lot of deep, focused time. And as a programmer, all you want in life is to not have meetings and to just be able to think deeply and solve hard problems um, and to ship a lot of code. And if you're a remote software team, you can totally make that happen. You have a lot of control. You're not forced to be in the same region as everybody else, uh, to come to the office, to deal with multi-hour commutes. Uh, You don't have to worry about somebody coming over and tapping you on the shoulder and pulling you into something. You can just focus on what it is you need to do. So I think for software teams in particular, remote is a, a really, really effective way of allowing developers to be incredibly productive. Uh, especially if you structure it that way, and it's the other nice thing about it is that it enforces good habits. So uh, to do remote effectively requires a culture of documentation. It requires a culture of transparency and trust. It's one of the biggest things. Um, if you if you're in a company that micromanages you, where I I've been told that there are consulting firms where they put uh, sensors on your chair to uh, check how many hours you spent at your desk in the office, um, which I think is incredibly toxic because it really just demonstrates you don't trust the people that you work with, which is really a whole different set of problems that you should probably address as a company. <laughs> if you trust the people that you work with and the, you, you start with the assumption that you've hired great people who want to do great work, Enabling them to do so is really your top objective, and being in a remote team, allowing people to figure out uh, and to to work with them on how they can be most productive, I think is I think it's really the future of building software companies. It there are so many advantages, uh, both from the company side and the the personnel side, that it's 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 an obvious path forward.
1: Yeah, the whole bum in the chair principle is. It, it, I mean, my whole life, it's been one of the most infuriating things. If I was ranking like top three things that I find infuriating, one is grades in school. Like, hey, take a multiple choice test. And this means you're like smart or not. I think that's absurd. Um, But the bum and chair principle of like, well, you were in these four walls for this period of time. That means you work hard is like so ridiculous because you're not measuring results and output. You're measuring like time on task, which actually could mean somebody's very inefficient if they take years to do something that should take hours. Right. And the thing that that I've been thinking about with remote work, which is cause I, I mean, I personally I just love it. Um I've been starting to think a little bit more about how we we're very thorough in documentation. We're very thorough in communication. Like I think that's those are those are integral skill sets to be impactful in remote work, right? Like if you Uh assume somebody can't or doesn't communicate well, or assume somebody can't write a memo or like collaborate on a memo, I think that's going to, that would be very hard for a person to be successful. With that said, what got me thinking is, Hey, what happens if somebody is dyslexic and they Cannot read long memos. They cannot write long memos. Like it just hurts their brain. But they're extremely smart people, like Sir Richard Branson. How would work in a remote environment like Levels have to be adapted to make sure that that person could still be effective in their skill set, while still maintaining some of the cultural norms that we have?
0: Yeah, I think the the principle is asynchronicity. Um, The documentation doesn't necessarily have to be written. It tends to be written just because that's an effective way of transmitting and searching for information. But uh, we do a lot of videos as well. We record looms to do unidirectional meetings. Um, I think you have to start with the assumption that meetings are not just not work. Meetings are anti-work. Uh, if you're spending time in a meeting, you are you are anti-working. And so uh, we've found that, I've certainly found this for myself, that most of the meetings that I take could easily have just been done in an email. Or I could, uh, somebody will request something that will request a 30-minute or a one-hour meeting. I will <laughs> record myself on video just giving them my thoughts that I would have given in the meeting for two to five minutes and then I send it to them, and then the meeting is entirely unnecessary. Um, and I did it on my own schedule when it was convenient for me, and they read it when it was convenient for them. And so um, I think that the, the principles are the same, uh, which is um, making sure that things are recorded and captured. This happened yesterday. Uh, I, uh, I had some thoughts. Instead of calling for a meeting with Casey, I just recorded a five minute video of me talking about the thoughts that I had. And somebody completely unrelatedly asked for some information on our thought process around this particular thing. And Casey just used the video that I sent her to explain it. Instead of her jumping on a 30 minute call to then explain the same thing that I was just explaining, it's all about information scalability. So um, documentation doesn't necessarily have to be the, in the form factor of a written memo. There are many ways that you can achieve the same goal.
1: Yeah. I I love being asynchronous. I think it's so effective because we set the expectation and the precedent that if you are at Samming on Slack or whatever channel it is over and over at Sam, uh, can I get your feedback on this? You're like, is the house on fire? Like, what are you doing? Right. Like that's we've set this precedent that like that is not the way to communicate by um, trying to break people's workflow and attention for something unless the house is on fire. Example is yesterday I was on a call and somebody went to go look at the site and they're like, hey, the site's down. So I at Andrew on Slack. Right alerted him in the engineering team. Those are times where it's like, okay, probably acceptable. But in general, being asynchronous, we get so much more done. And then to your point about having meetings, the meeting becomes this opportunity to transform information when appropriate, but also carve out time necessary to connect for five or 10 minutes, whatever it is, in addition to actually Going over information.
0: Yeah, sometimes, sometimes the sometimes meetings are necessary when it's clear that in the back and forth asynchronous format there's some miscommunication or people are talking past each other. Um, this has definitely happened to me, where I write something and then the person who I'm writing it to responds but it feels like they're answering a different question. And I somehow was not able to communicate effectively what I meant. And so sometimes these types of, sometimes their their meetings are useful for alignment on what is it that we actually mean? Uh, what, what are the words that we should be using? Because clearly the words that I proposed are different than the way that they were interpreted. So, That's another good use case for meetings. It's just clarifying when things are confusing. But oftentimes it's helpful to even record those and use those as an artifact for future people where when they want to see why we made a particular decision, to be able to see the entire process can often really, really be helpful.
1: Yeah, there's nothing worse than trying to have a synchronous conversation through text when it takes like it ends up being such an inefficient use of time. Somebody's going back and forth and you're just like, why are we doing this through text? Like the, I mean, last week, I think it was last week. um, Josh had texted me on Friday, shortly before forum. And he was like, hey, um, when you're talking about revenue, it was something like that. When you're talking about revenue, um, do you want to chat more about X, Y, Z? And so then I texted him back and I'm like, I'm uh to cl- like I need further clarification on like what this text means. Do you have a couple minutes to like just chat on the phone about it? Because it would have been so inefficient to be going yep. back and forth. Like this is what I actually mean, and it was very beneficial to talk, nod our heads virtually, and be like, "Yep, we both are on the same page about what the intent and the outcome will be." And so it was just like. Hey that's that was a good solution because we we were both like in the conversation at the same time we were both distracted at the same time good use of time as opposed to like taking 15 minutes to figure out something that you can do in a couple
0: yeah and fortunately this is not a problem that I've had at levels but I have been in different companies and projects where I've had multi-hour back and forth on Slack with my thumbs that could have easily been solved in a five-minute phone call. Because somebody writes something. That's, Slack often comes with this synchronous expectation. Um, it, is a, it is an asynchronous tool masquerading as a synchronous tool. Um, the, the challenge is that it, instant messaging is not a good way of communicating with people. Because there's so much fidelity lost in the written form, um, especially when you're doing it in short form, that you almost immediately start to diverge in terms of understanding of what we're even talking about. Um, And then that causes further clarification. I'm now, I text something with my thumbs to you on Slack. I now have to wait up to five minutes for you to respond because maybe you're in the middle of something. But I don't know when you're going to respond. It's it's a really really terrible way of interacting, and I, I've I've been in situations where I would ping the person on Slack and say, "Hey, can we do this on a call?" I said, "No, I can't do a call now." But they're still pinging me on Slack all the time, and it's uh, it can be a very frustrating thing. And I I think it's especially frustrating for engineers because engineering is only you can only really do good engineering work when you're in a flow state and. Having these constant distractions uh, is is incredibly harmful to engineering productivity. So, a lot of the processes are built around my personal experience as an engineer.
1: Yeah, I would I would argue that it's I don't think anyone can do good work. Um, never mind just engineering. I think anyone who's trying to do focused work, like writing a memo, that takes focus. That can, that is. That is an initiative of turn off email, turn off text, turn off Slack, dig in for 30 minutes of uninterrupted or X period of time of uninterrupted work and do great work. But it is not going to be efficient to spend an hour doing that and then some email or text pops up and you get out of, like you get into such a great flow state when you're doing work like that. And it's, you just can't, you can't be distracted. I mean, there's, Honestly, I think I would rather watch paint dry. And I'm not even joking. I would rather watch paint dry against a wall than sit there watching the ellipsis at the bottom of like,
0: yeah, sure. Like
1: slack or a text conversation where you're like, this is painful. Unless it's a quick back and forth that is two or three minutes of, I'll be there at this time, work for you, done, boom. Like, easy. That's fine. But not these as you suggested, these like three hour distraction um, threads that pull you away from doing any meaningful work in a day and then back to the bum in the chair conversation. That's what a lot of people are doing. They're like, oh, I worked. So I was at the office for 12 hours today. And you're like, yeah, you had nine hours of watching an ellipsis at the bottom of some platform. That's all you did. You didn't do real work or you were in meetings. Like you were in these like eight person meetings with no agenda and everyone's, trying to sound important and get their thoughts heard. And then people who actually have reasonable things to say or beneficial, like value to add, don't get heard because the airspace isn't shared. And so you're like, Hmm, doesn't sound very efficient to me.
0: Yeah, definitely.
1: So when like the decision to go remote was prior to COVID, right? Yeah, yeah we so
0: started was, as remote.
1: Yeah, and so this is like December 19, January 20, around that time when things started ramping up further and further. And there was this really interesting thing that happened where it was sort of the world against Jason Freed in Basecamp. It was the world against, like, or we'll say um, Zapier, we'll say... Uh, Get Lab. Yep. Yeah, GitLab, like everybody who has been remote only, like a, only a remote company, not this hybrid model. And so everyone's like, ah, that doesn't work. And it was this big social debate in especially in the tech and startup world. But then COVID comes along and everyone's scrambling to figure it out. And I think levels, because of the position that we were in, were a new company small team, the principles were being developed as far as, Hey, here, here's the process here, are the platforms we work on. I think that we got great tailwinds from building a remote culture over the course of this past year. Yeah. How did that come into play? Cause I know you and I've chatted very loosely about it before. How did that come into play when it came time to do, the raise and the raise is a whole different conversation. We'll have to cover one day.
0: <laughs> sure. Yeah. It, it's interesting because when we started the process for a fundraise pre COVID, we had a number of funds explicitly pass on us because we were remote. Um, they just said, you know, we like what you're doing, but we just don't think remote teams can be successful. Um, I remember during the height of COVID, Um, in April, we had our leadership check-in call and we realized that everyone we knew was scrambling to figure this stuff out, but we already had the processes in place. Everything was already well-documented. I think our, our total productivity loss as a company from COVID was that David, our, our head of product had to take a half a day off work once to move some stuff, but that was pretty much it. So Uh, We came out of, a lot of investors came out of COVID um, in September um, when we had a better sense of what was happening, uh, looking to invest in remote teams. And I think that we had shown that we can do it very effectively. So I think it was, it ended up being a very positive thing. I think if COVID had not happened, it probably would still be an anchor that we'd have to overcome as a company. But it... Mm -hmm. I think it accelerated it quite a lot.
1: Yeah, because I remember y- you were saying that investors started looking for companies that were building as like startups that were building entirely remote teams from day one. Yeah. that was That's what happened in the fall. But there was this interesting thing that happened in the funding landscape from, so let's say, I always say that the day the world ended was March 6th because that was the day that like the way, the way that things worked was December. There were some alarm bells that, um, people were ringing saying, Hey, there's this thing we should pay attention to. And no one really did January a little bit more February is when the big conference circuits start. And so there was Facebook F eight, there was mobile world Congress in Barcelona. Um, I think Google, the Google I/O event. There was a bunch of them, and within the course of like between, we'll say February twentieth until March sixth, all of these events started getting canceled. And on February or February on March sixth, South by Southwest, one of the biggest draws in the world for these like major events was canceled and there was a petition against it. And um, I think that's when things really changed because that Monday, like the following Monday, all companies, like all tech companies said, okay, we're remote. Like it just changed very, very quickly. And so in the funding landscape, there were investors that were tweeting things. Sequoia put out a memo saying, um, there were like two major memos they've had. One was before the the 08 recession, 08, 09 recession, somewhere around there. And then there was the memo about like things are going to change in the funding landscape. And so investors got, um, got back on their heels for the right reasons. And they said, we're going to hold off on allocating capital. We don't know when, like we might not be able to raise from our LPs for a long time. And then April may rolled around and people sort of heard musings that like, well, I heard, Like I heard Harry at Stride, like Harry Stebbings at Stride, like I heard he's in on Hoppin or like whoever, right? Like it doesn't matter which investor. And so then everyone started saying like, I think we can just like the startups haven't really lost productivity. They're not laying people off for the most part. I think we can keep allocating capital. And over the summer, which is usually a dry period in fundraising, ended up being this aggressive push where everyone's going, I've never seen this happen before. And this carried on into the fall, which is when the raise happened for levels, which was pretty significant.
0: Yeah, it's it's interesting because we since we record all of our weekly team all hands, the Friday forums, I was looking back on some of the older forums from May and June. It wasn't until June that investors even started returning my emails. So the The landscape just completely went dark for several months. Just quite a uh, a, a concerning time. Um, mm-hmm. But then, uh, by the time September rolled around, I think everyone was back on the horse, looking to allocate capital again. So yeah,
1: yeah, and and to like jump on that for a sec. Statistically, the highest period of funding happens annually between that spring and start of summer period so it's that like the we'll call it tail end of march but april may june like that is statistically when the the most funding is allocated to startups in the period of a year and so for that not to happen was a really interesting thing when it comes to venture capital, um, even people that were like, no one was taking on debt either. Now I think people are like, yeah, I'll do a debt raise. Why not? Right. So when, when you went to go raise around in the fall, things started heating up because there was more traction and awareness for levels. The, the approach the company was taking to being built was different than other startups. The space was, very interesting, and we'll call it frontier tech. Um, And the TAM, like the total addressable market globally of this problem space is, like, we have to use the word unknown, because it's really, it's very hard to be empirical about what the actual TAM of this is. Really, it is.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's tricky when you're effectively creating a new market. Um, You don't it could be anywhere from zero to some very, very large number. You don't really know. Um, so, yeah, it's it definitely, you have to make your bets when you're starting a company on what are the things that you assume to be true that other people do not think is true. That is the the nature of a startup. Because if everybody knew it, it would already exist. So our our bet was that there was a market for this. And uh so far, that that seems to be a correct bet, but these things are all. Uh, I I think of this as still very early stage, and uh, we still have a long way to go before we solve the metabolic health crisis.
1: How many emails did I process in the time that I had texted you? Is the question.
0: <laughs>
1: it's like how many how many uh, marbles are in the jar
0: email is is really my core competency.